Well, gosh, it's just kind of amazing to think about what God does for us on the cross, what He does in, in pouring out His blood, and then yet have to realize, boy, when we talk about Christianity, when we talk about the church, especially when we go out into our community, it's, I mean, it can get kind of embarrassing, can it? Kind of, kind of embarrassing to be a Christian. I mean, you know, we are, after all, the worst people in society. We are, after all, the most devastating force on the planet. I mean, look at all the wrong that the church has done throughout history. I mean, you, you hear it on the Discovery Channel and History Channel. You're, you're being pounded with it in the classroom. I mean, look at the Crusades. The Crusades, what a, what a you know, perfect picture of you know, Christians picking up arms and going and killing millions of Muslims to advance the church, to spread the gospel. Or, or how about the Salem witch trials? I mean, you know, there's all kinds of proof that the church hates women. Uh, the Da Vinci Code. Well, what a great piece of evidence that was. Uh, but the Salem witch trials. I mean, we burned thousands and thousands of women at the stake. The church did that. And, and then, you know, didn't Freud, didn't that guy prove that all of our sexual hangups and problems, that's, that's because of the guilt that the church and Christian morality puts on people? And then there's TV preachers. Now, that's just a lot we got to be proud of, isn't it? Man, they're us. All right. You know, or just, just preachers in general. Gosh, you got to watch those guys. I only want two things, your money and your wife. You're at church. You better keep an eye on both. Now, you understand that's not a confession. Okay, this is just, just to kind of get us thinking, right? You should see my wife in the first service fall over at that. Um, and, and why is it that the worst guy in the community, show me the worst scoundrel in the community, and I'll show you somebody that teaches Sunday school down at First Baptist or First Methodist or, or First Presbyterian. I mean, folks, they just come at us with all of these things that are wrong about the church, capital C, all these things that are wrong inside the church with you and me, and, and you and I just stand there like a deer in headlights. I mean, what do we say? It's all so, so true, right? You know, why, why would somebody come to church? Why would they come to Christ if this really is a gathering of the worst people in the community? If the church really is this bad, destructive force on the planet, why, why would you join something like that? Why would you want to become that? Are, are you and I just living evidence of the really little effect that Jesus and the church actually has on anybody? How do we respond to what I call the hypocrite trump card? <laughs> You're talking to somebody about church and Christ and wham, they throw down the ace of spades. The hypocrite trump card. I mean, there's nothing more we can say. I mean, guilty as charged. What do we do? I want to give you four ideas, four uh, pretty quick responses. Now, the first one's a little bit longer. The last three are just real quick. So if I'm going through the first one, don't try to multiply it out and think, gosh, if he takes this much time on the other three, we won't be done before halftime. Uh, no, 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 it's, it's going to be one long point and three really quick ones. But, but four responses to the hypocrite, hypocrite trump card. The first response, first response is, yeah, there's some truth to that. Yeah, we have to acknowledge some truth, but, but, I'll explain the, the but in a moment. 
You know, I don't know about you guys, but I, I watch the news sometimes, or you're watching TV, or you're reading something, or you hear about something going on in the Christian community, uh, and, and, and I just want to yell out, but that's not us! That, that, that's not even a real Christian! That, that's not even a genuine Christian church! I want to separate my... You know what I'm talking about? You, you see some of that, and you know that... That represents nothing of Christianity. And you know what? There's some places where that might be true. It, it really is wrong that that's labeled Christianity and that, that we're made guilty for that. But, you know, good luck trying to separate yourself from that. It's not going to happen. We are going to be lumped into the same group. So I, I can't separate myself from it. But, you know, even that stuff that's not us. But there's still problems with with us. I mean, we have done some things. You know, when I think about hypocrites, I tend to think of unbelievers out there who are looking inside the church and judging. But I've come to see recently through some different things that, you know, a lot of the people who struggle with the hypocrisy in the church actually were people who were in the church. And they got they got hurt. They got abused. They got looked down that long nose of I'm perfect and you're not. I'm righteous and good, and you're not. And those are the ones that, that have been beaten up a good bit with hypocrisy. But, but there is a lot of that out there. I mean, gosh, it, it gets frustrating hearing the stories of a, a pastor in adultery or his financial misdealings. It gets, it gets frustrating seeing that, that maybe the worst scoundrel in town actually is a pretty, pretty faithful church member. You know, and these stories go on. And then there's those stories like those that I quoted in history where people look at what the church has done. And you and I stand there, we, we got no reason for it. But folks, we, we do need to be able to stand up and respond. And we need to res respond in the right way. First of all, we do need to acknowledge that the Bible actually teaches we are all, our, we are all sinners, aren't we? The, the church and the unchurched. This is not a gathering of perfect people. My gosh, if you're perfect, leave quickly. I promise you, we'll mess you up. You need to head to the door. Right? Don't even wait till I'm done. You, free pass, go. Uh, if you're perfect, leave. We're not perfect. We're not a gathering of perfect people. We're a gathering of forgiven people, right? We're a gathering of forgiven people. But, and I'm going to address that part. There's two parts to this. Uh, you know, it, there's some truth, but... The first part is, yeah, yeah, we're, we're not perfect. But the other part of this, folks, is that the church is the single greatest force for good on this planet. And that has been true for 2,000 years. There is nothing that comes even remotely close to comparing to the good that the church has done in individual communities and around this world. And we need to be prepared to talk about that. There is a book I recommend. Uh, it's by Dinesh D'Souza, a little bit different name. He's an Indian, Dinesh D'Souza, called What's So Great About Christianity? Uh, if you've got a child in high school or a child in college, this is mandatory reading for your home. You, you don't have a choice. Your child should read this and you should read this. And what he deals with in here a, a lot is the good that has been done by the church and he also deals with the bad that's been done by the church, but how that has been overplayed, grossly exaggerated, in some places just out and out lied. You turn on today uh, and catch something on the Crusades, uh, on the History Channel or Discovery Channel. You go to the classroom and learn something about the Crusades. And what you're going to learn about is the evil horde called the church 
that, 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 that swept in and just destroyed and ransacked Muslim villages and, and attacked Islam. Folks, that is a direct, total historical lie. There's no evidence of such a thing. Did you know that, that, that Iraq, Syria, Jordan, uh, Egypt, certainly hearing a lot about that in the news right now, did you know that those areas were primarily Christian? That the highest percentage of people in those areas was Christian until Islam moved in? And Islam didn't move in with a debate about what do y'all teach, here's what we teach, and they started winning converts. They moved in with military action. They moved in and began burning and, and destroying villages and killing people. And they militarily took over those areas. And that was going on for 200 years. This is a historical fact. It's not debatable. That was going on for 200 years. And as it spread throughout the Middle East, as it began to spread into Europe, the church finally rose up to survive and began to fight. Now, when I use the word church... You've got to remember, it's a very different world then than now. And the world then was wrong. And the church and the government were one and the same. They worked one in the same. And so when I say the, the church rose up militarily, it was the government, but the, the government and the church were doing that together. Of course, you and I know there is nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in the New Testament or the call of Christ, that we are called on to advance the church militarily. That's not how we spread the gospel. That's not how we advance the church. But you know what? The, the church, the government, Europe, was not doing that to advance the church. They were not doing that to advance the gospel. They were doing that to survive. They were doing that so that they could live. That's what was going on in the Crusades. We need to know that. We need to understand that, be able to explain that. The Salem witch trials. Again, there's all kinds of things that people want to use to prove how the, the church hates women, and that's one of them. I mean, after all, the church burned thousands of women at the stake. That's what you'll get if you listen to the Discovery Channel. That's what you'll get in the classroom about some of the wrong done in the church. Do you, do you know how many women we actually burned at the stake in the Salem witch trials? I mean, I know you don't. I'm just asking that question for fun because I do. I, I do. I, I actually know. Uh, now, can I say this? One woman's too many, isn't it? That, that was wrong. That's a bad spot. But it was not thousands of women. Nineteen. That's how many women were convicted of witchery, witchhood, and, and were burned at a stake. Now, that's not right. There's a big difference, though, between nineteen and thousands. Another great example of this is the European witch trials. Carl Sagan who is not a historian, he's an avowed atheist, a hater of the church, and a scientist, is speaking on the European witch trials. And, and, and he says, you know, we will never know how many women the church murdered, perhaps millions. I think he got that from millions and millions of stars, but he brought it over and he said millions of women. Now, what did Carl Sagan cite what was his reference? What was his historical research to make a claim like that? The answer is zero. Nothing. He just made the claim. Here's the interesting thing, though. Because his name is so well known, because his name is so well respected among academia, historians now quote him saying the church murdered millions of women. They're quoting Carl Sagan, who quoted nothing. He just made it up. What's interesting, another atheist, another hater of the church, but an actual historian and somebody who studied the European witch trials and, and did cite things, a guy by the name of Sam Harris, 
said that possibly as many as 100,000. Now, folks, that's awful. That's incredibly awful to think that something under the name, the umbrella of the church, would do something like that. But can I say there's a difference between 100,000 and millions? And see, that's what history is going to do over and over and over. It's either going to out and out lie or it is going to grossly exaggerate the role of the church. It's going to do that. It's going to go out of its way. And isn't it interesting, by the way, have you noticed that history and academia is also going to go out of its way to make Islam sound good? It has done that historically and it is doing it right now. It will do everything under the sun it can to make this a peace-loving religion. Although it's not. Now, you and I can cry and talk about how unfair that is and send each other cool emails that show how unfair it is. Folks, isn't this exactly what Jesus said was going to happen? Didn't he say the world was going to hate us? We shouldn't be shocked. We, We shouldn't be surprised by that. We should be ready, though, to stand up and address it and talk about it. And it's not just an issue of overplaying the wrong or the bad inside the church. It's also an issue of absolutely not acknowledging any of the good. And folks, you can say this with tremendous authority. There is no religion and there is no secular agency that even comes close in comparison to the good that the church has done on this planet. I mean, folks, you can't even when you start talking about hospitals, orphanages, uh, disaster relief works, rescue shelters, feeding the poor. When you talk about who has done this for the last 2000 years, who's doing it today? Far and away, it's the church. Second is so far behind, it doesn't even count anymore. Now, in America, in America, you will see secular agencies. You will see the government coming up and doing these acts of goodness, these these acts of kindness. But you know, when that has been absolutely non-existent among governments, when you don't see that among nations, you have to step back and say, why? What's different, what's unique about the United States that there seems to be this DNA of charity, this DNA of generosity? Where did that come from? Now, folks, there'll be people out there in the in the in the in the world that will disagree with this statement but it comes from a nation that was founded on christian principles i don't think we're a christian nation today not at all but we were a nation that started and was built on christian morality christian principles christian generosity and charity and it's still producing that today the greatest force for good on this planet has been and is still today the church and not only and again a book like that like what's so great about Christianity can help you, not only do we need to be ready to address some of the wrongs done and what actually was going on there and how, how much that was, not only do we need to be uh, looking at the good that the church is doing, but, but folks, you know, not only is the church good, I find a lot of people in the church to be good. Not perfect people. And I think probably to some degree we can all struggle a little bit with hypocrisy. You know, I mean, if you've ever told your children not to lie and then, then you tell your children to tell them on the phone that you're not here, that's hypocrisy, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I mean, we all struggle with that to some degree. But folks, you know what? Stop and look around in the community in the world today. Okay? The prisons aren't filled with church-going people. When you look around in your community, some of the best things happening in a community, some of the best people in a community, they aren't actually church people. I didn't say they were perfect people. I didn't say they were the only good people. 
But folks, percentage-wise, we're a lot of the best part of what's going on in a community. As a matter of fact, if you want to talk about who actually has brought about devastation on the planet, folks, hands down, there is no comparison to atheist writers and atheist military leaders. They have killed and led to the deaths hundreds of millions of people. Now, lest I just sound like Carl Sagan, where I just throw out a big number and a statement and can't back it up, let me just mention a couple names. Stalin, Karl Marx, Mao Zedong. Those three guys right there, you got over 100 million deaths, all driven by atheism. All driven by a hatred for God and the church. And that's, that's just three names. You can go on and on and on. The problem in this world is not the church. The problem in this world is not Christianity. We have our problems. We've caused our problems. Folks, we don't measure the problems in this world. And we way over measure. We way come out on top in the good. And you know, if you've got a problem with hypocrisy in the church, guess what? So does the church. This is a good place to point out Jesus had a problem with hypocrisy also. So if you've got a problem with hypocrisy, you're a lot like Jesus. You two ought to get to know each other. You ought to spend some time with them. Folks, I I would say the church is not full of hypocrites. It is full of people who'd like to live like Jesus. And they need his help. That's what I'd rather say. I want to live like Christ. I fall short of doing that. Sometimes not by accident. Sometimes it wasn't a mistake. I just chose not to live like Christ in that moment. Uh, And you know what? And somebody saw that. That makes me, that makes you look like a hypocrite. We're a room full of people who'd really like to learn to live like Christ. And we need his help to do that. But where hypocrisy is an issue, man, yeah, Jesus and the church have a problem with it. They don't support that. Matter of fact, listen to this. This comes from... uh, Matthew chapter 6, you don't need to turn there, I'm just going to read a couple phrases real quickly. But Matthew chapter 6, this is the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is preaching and he says, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Verse 5, you must not be like the hypocrites. Verse 16, don't be sad faced like the hypocrites. Folks, Jesus over and over preaches against being a hypocrite. You turn to Matthew chapter 23, you have an entire chapter, you have an entire sermon that is aimed at one issue, hypocrisy. And he starts off talking about saying one thing, but doing another. That's kind of the simple definition of being a hypocrite, isn't it? We we say we believe this, but we do this. We say we're this kind of person, but we go out and live in in a contrary way. Man, Jesus addresses that with some very strong words. And then he says six times, Woe! Woe is a strong word in the Greek language. It's a word of warning. Woe to the hypocrite! Six times, over and over and over in just one chapter. Woe to the hypocrites! And then he ends the sermon by calling them a brood of vipers. Jesus' harshest words in the entire New Testament are aimed at at hypocrites. So again, if you've got a problem with hypocrites, you're going to love Jesus. He does too. You ought to get to know him. We don't follow people here. We don't follow a church here. We follow Jesus. Now that's where somebody will say, well now, now that I agree with you on. I don't, I don't think you've got to go to church to be a Christian or, or to worship God. I don't think you have to go to church at all. And that's where you need to say, no, I didn't say that. Folks, did you know you actually do have to go to church 
to be a follower of Christ? You see, sometimes in trying to make the gospel clear, we go so far out of our way to say, sitting in a church building doesn't make you a Christian. Or going to church doesn't make you a Christian. We've gone so far in saying that, that somewhere our culture has now divorced church from Christianity. You cannot faithfully follow, you cannot faithfully grow as a believer without vitally, vitally is the key word there, not just attending in a building, without vitally being connected to his church. You say, well, I, 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 how, how do you know that? I, I, I think you can. Folks, there's, there's probably 80 to 100 commands in the New Testament that can only be filled inside this room. There are commands that, re, that have to do with how you and I relate together as believers. There's another whole set of commands that relate with how you and I as a group leave this room and go back out into the world. If I'm not connected to the church, then I'm disobeying those commands every day of my life. On my best day of being good and wonderful, I have disobeyed no less than 100 commands in the New Testament. It's impossible to be growing in Christ and be distinct and separate from His church. And that kind of would lead to the third point I'd make with somebody. Jesus loves His church. Do you know that? He, he lo this gathering right here, us getting together, He loves this. He doesn't love sin. And He's going to deal with hypocrisy. But He loves His church. You know what He calls us? He calls us His bride. Now, you know what? I don't know many grooms who take well to somebody bad-mouthing their bride. And so when I'm talking to somebody, especially somebody I know, maybe a, a, a friend, a neighbor, and they're kind of, ah, the church, ah, that, 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 and they're talking bad about the church. You know what? I want to say, man, you know what? I don't want you to receive this wrong. I'm really, I'm saying it out of love. Jesus loves His church. And you know what? One day you're going to stand before Him as your judge. And that can't possibly go well if you've spent a lifetime bad-mouthing his bride. Yeah, I mean, we need to say that. But we communicate the truth. That's what we do, right? That's the truth. He loves this body. And by the way, fourth thing, where do you want a hypocrite to be on Sunday? I think probably the best place for him is this room. Under the sound of God's word, in the, in the worship of God with his people... They obviously hypocrites have shown the ability to resist change, to resist conviction. But the best chance that's going to happen is inside of here. Now that, you know, I just said Jesus is going to deal harshly. Jesus talks harshly about hypocrites. But then I turn around and say, isn't this the best place for him to be? You know, it's interesting when you look at all of Jesus words about hypocrites. Do you know where 100 percent of those words are aimed? Kind of hard for me to say they're aimed at me. They're aimed at the pastoral staff. They're aimed at the deacons. They're aimed at the teachers. They're aimed at church leadership. Why? Because I have, I have the influence. I've got the ability to stand up here and influence you, paint a picture for you of Christ. And then when I live in a contradictory way to that, it smears that picture. And I, and I can lead many. Any leader can lead many to do that. To have a false view of God's Word. To have a false view of Christianity. To hurt people in a greater fashion. So yes, as a church, we need to be wary of hypocrisy in the leadership. But after that, folks, I'd rather have hypocrites sitting right out here. Under the sound of God's word every single Sunday. And that's about all I'm really going to deal with. 
I mean, folks, you know, I think we need to be ready to engage, not fight. Not, not get defensive. As a matter of fact, the scripture tells us exactly how to approach this. We're to be gentle. We're to be respectful. But by golly, we are to be ready to give an answer. First Peter three fifteen and 16. Check it out. You're to be ready to give an answer, but not argue and fight. And you know what? When I find myself in that debate, I'm going to make points like that. But I'm really I'm going to try to steer it back to Jesus, because if they don't love Jesus, they're not going to love his church. My goodness, some of us love Jesus and have a hard time loving his church. So how's a person who doesn't even love Jesus going to love his church? But you know what? Shouldn't our lives give Jesus an audience with that person? Shouldn't the way you and I are living make them want to pursue the claims of Christ? Not, not because we're so good and perfect. Not because we're looking down at them because we're so good and perfect and they're not. But they see that we strive for such good because we're so overwhelmed how much we're loved and forgiven by Jesus. Shouldn't our lives make people interested in Christ? Folks, let me read a passage to you. This comes out of Titus chapter 2. You won't hear the word hypocrisy in this passage. But it's an interesting passage because it weaves together so that you almost can't tell them apart what we say, what we teach, but then how it shows up in how we live. Listen to what it says here. This is Titus chapter 2. It says, but you must speak what is consistent with sound teaching. You know, hypocrites, they're going to teach. They're going to teach the law, what you can and can't do. We must teach what is consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, sound in faith, love, and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not addicted to much wine. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and children, to be sensible, pure, good homemakers, and submissive to their husbands. So that, listen to this phrase, so that God's message may not be slandered. Verse 6, likewise, encourage the young men to be sensible about everything. Set an example of good works yourself with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that the opponent will be ashamed having nothing bad to say about us. Folks, how we teach, how we talk, and how we live are to be so intertwined you can't tell them apart. Did you see in that passage how it went back and forth between teaching and living, between talking and behavior? They, they were seamless. You can't separate them. They're what, in other words, they're not hypocrites. Our lives are not to be hypocritical. Man, we, we talk, we teach, we go out and we live. And where we stumble, we confess it. We're humble around the people that we stumble with. We're not trying to present ourselves as perfect and better than. And then we get up and we strive after that good again. There's two phrases that stand out to me in this passage. The first one is, so that God's message may not be slandered. Folks, do you realize every one of us, it doesn't matter how you rate yourself or think of yourself or what you are. And there's every person that leaves this room, when you go out of here today, how you live, starting in privacy... How you live in front of your mate, how you live in front of your children, how you live in front of your classmates, your your co-workers, your friends, your neighbors, how you live in front of people has the ability to slander 
God's Word. Have you ever once thought, man, the decisions I'm making, the way I'm treating people, the way I'm acting, has the potential to slander God's Word, especially if you're calling yourself a Christian. You know, there's, a, there's an American mantra. I don't care what other people think. I can do what I want. You know, that may be an American mantra, but it's not a Christian mantra. It absolutely matters what other people think. It absolutely matters what you portray about yourself and what they see. Folks, we do not want to slander the Word of God. Second phrase that stands out here to me is that our message is to be beyond reproach so that the opponent will be ashamed. The opponent is going to have nothing bad to say about us. Folks, I said it earlier. We have opponents. They're not going to like us. Get over it. Okay, if you're waiting for the world to applaud you, if you're waiting to turn on the news and and they just all of a sudden love Christianity, man, you are in for a wait. It's not going to happen. But Jesus said, don't crawl over into a corner and pout. Instead, he he said, go out there and live so good that sooner or later, it just sounds dumb when they're talking about how bad we are. You know, folks, when I read something like that, what jumps out at me is the opportunity that is there in those Krestos events. You know that Greek word, Krestos, that means God's kindness. We do that in our church. Bible fellowship classes. Man, I hope every Bible fellowship class right now is already talking, thinking about what they're going to do this spring to have a Krestos event, where they're going to go into their community and show some act of kindness. You, you know that, that we come together as a church. We do one big event a, a year. Last summer, we remember we had five, six hundred go out to the schools and clean up and fix up and, and to do all that. Folks, when I announced that, if you'll remember, I said the number of us is just as important, if not more important, than what we're going to actually do. It's not we need this many people because we have this many shovels and this many paintbrushes. Folks, it's the opportunity to be a force for good. 600 people last summer went out and did that. You realize, what did I say earlier? There's no organization in this community that sends out 600 people to do something that's good, to do something that just benefits others. Nothing comes back on us. Folks, do you see why it's so important we do it this summer? There's a thousand. Wouldn't that be awesome? A thousand of us going out there to do whatever we're going to do. I don't think we've decided yet. But you see, when we're continually doing that, whether it's a small group of us or the whole church of us, it makes it kind of hard for them to keep talking about how bad the church is. Folks, we've been sent to do that. Every one of you, you, I don't know if I'm going to be available that Saturday. You need to be begging us. Where are you going to give us that opportunity? Where are we going to get that chance? Because see, folks, it helps you when you're standing there talking to that person And they go, oh, the church is full of that. No, no, not my church. Man, I sit next to some wonderful people. I sit next to some very godly people. Man, our church, we went out and we did this. Or my class, we went out and did this. What other organization are you aware of that does something like that? You know, folks, our church, and I'm not talking about capital C now. I'm talking about little C, Colonial Heights Baptist Church. You know, we're kind of on the radar right now, aren't we? I mean, they're talking about this church all through this community. One of the great evidences of that is how far people are coming to get here every Sunday. I think we've got it averaged out now that we have at least six first-time visitors, every, six families, first-time visiting this church every Sunday coming from more than 20 miles away. 
Why is somebody that far away driving all the way over here? They've heard, haven't they? You see, there's a talk. There's a little bit of a buzz going on. Now, you could say, oh, that's kind of cool. Isn't our church better than everybody else? <laughs> that would be the wrong thing to do. What we need to realize, folks, is because all that buzz is going on, when you say, you the individual, when you say, I go to Colonial Heights Baptist, you know, they're going to say, I've heard of that church. And you know what? They're going to begin watching your life. They're going to watch the, the values that you voice, the behaviors that you display. They're going to they'll watch how you make decisions, what's important to you. And did you know your life all by itself will define what Colonial Heights Baptist Church is? I didn't, wait, wait a minute, I don't want that burden. I didn't, I didn't ask for me, my life to define that. Folks, that is your burden. Capital C, the church. Little c, Colonial Heights Baptist Church. Your life is going to define what we are and ultimately decide not whether we get bigger and we win that person. Your life may ultimately determine whether that person listens to the claims of Christ. Your life has an impact on whether they listen to the gospel. Folks, very simple sentence sums up the entire sermon. Your life is to be bait, not repellent. And that starts in the privacy of your home, in front of your own family, through all the relationships, right down to the stranger. Is your life a bait, something that draws to Christ? Or is it repellent? We've got a lot to be proud of in the church. We need to learn how to explain it. Say it with a sense of excitement. We need to be able to talk about what the church in here is doing. But folks, 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 most of us, what we really need to do is just take on the challenge that my life would be bait, not repellent. And it is one. It absolutely is one of those. Let's pray. Father, I am amazed by your goodness. How you love, how you bless, how you forgive all that you do for me, for my family, my friends. God, what you do for this church. God, you're so good. Lord, I want my neighbors to know how good you are. I want, I want the people I work with. I want where we go to school. God, I want the whole world. I want them all to know how good you are. God, I would pray that the way I live in front of them, from privacy to public, pray that the way I live would be a platform for what you want to do. God, I'm sorry my life has gotten in the way. I know it has. I know there's been things I've said and done the way I've acted in front of others that would make it very difficult for them to be interested in Jesus. I'm sorry for that. We're sorry for that, God. But Lord, we want to change. We want to be good because we want people to know your goodness. Boys, I prayed earlier, God, I'm so thankful for the Bible that shows me how. I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit that will empower me. 
God, I pray I go out into this world this week and everywhere I go in every single relationship, I realize I'm either bait or repellent in this conversation. I'm either bait or repellent in how I'm acting. God, would you bring that to the forefront of our mind, our heart, and our soul? We ask for your help in this. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.